so many allies out there that think the same way, whether they do or don't label them feminine or goddess uh, as we do. Um, there are contributors in uh, that anthology like Noam Chomsky, Laura Flanders from Grit TV, Charles Eisenstein, Jean Shinoda Bolin, Barbara Walker, Rian Eisler, and many more notable and new voices, uh, new torch bearers, if you will, uh, who are going to be carrying the message of the feminine forward into the future. Uh, you should check them out uh, on my website, uh, my four books, and if you like what you see i hope you'll buy direct from me gee that that rhymed if you i if you like what you see i hope you'll buy direct from me uh, and if you do, I'm actually offering a special giveaway. Yes, indeed, a special giveaway. So perk up your ears here. Uh, if you buy two of my books, I will send you free a copy of Walking an Ancient Path. Yes, indeed. I will send you a free uh, Walking in Ancient Path if you buy two of my books. So just con uh, contact me, and I can make that happen for you. Yes, you heard right. Buy two books, and you get Walking in Ancient Path free. Uh, your purchases uh, uh, you know, that you make direct from me rather than from Amazon helps me pay for airtime here on the show. Um, that's one of the reasons I tell you about the books, because uh, that helps... Uh, finance the show and keep it going uh, because uh, I do have to pay for the airtime to bring these wonderful guests to you each week. So think about me uh, when you buy books for yourself uh, or for your loved ones or um, you know, you're, you're looking for something fresh and new for your coffee table or book circle or uh, your library. And um, tonight, uh, more fun stuff. Uh, always great guests, I believe, if, uh, if you don't mind me saying. Tonight our guest is Peggy Ayers, and our topic is Ancient Spirit Rising. Uh, Peggy tells us to come back to our roots. Well, we're going to be talking about her new book, Ancient Spirit Rising, An Essential Compendium for Change. But first, just a few important announcements, some housekeeping, if you will, some things I want to make sure uh, you hear tonight uh, before we uh, you know, get into our interview. Uh, you may have uh, known or heard of uh, Lydia Rule and what we call her girls, the goddess icon spirit banners that were really um, ambassadors, uh, ambassadors for goddess the world over. I don't know if you know Lydia uh, or you may have heard of her because she was very well known in the goddess community, uh, in the feminist community and uh, women's studies communities. Well, her banners, um, pieces of art actually, hung in halls around the world and opened doors that, uh, to goddess ideas that otherwise might have stayed closed. Um, you know, it's like sacred travel. When I'm out talking about sacred places, I can introduce goddess to places that you know, might not have known they wanted to hear about goddess, but they did want to hear about sacred travel. Well, uh, Lydia's goddess icon spirit banners, uh, which were art, they opened lots of doors and taught people about goddess when they didn't even know they were going to learn about goddess. Well, our foremother, our beloved Lydia Rule, <clears throat> uh, I have to say, I am so sorry to say that she has passed away in just the last few weeks. And um, I would like to read to you what I sent uh, to her memorial service. 
I was sorry I couldn't be there, uh, but she lives in Colorado. And um, women from the community gathered around her to celebrate her life uh, before she passed away. And um, what a wonderful way to end one's life. Uh, even even in her passing, I think she taught us so much, you know, to not that to not fear those final days, those final hours, but let it be a celebration. Anyway, uh, here's what I sent uh, to be read at Lydia's memorial. Dearest foremother and sister Lydia, you mean so much to so many of us. Mentor, artist, sacred guide, way shower. With your sacred machete, you've blazed a trail so that others might follow. Through your sacred art, the divine feminine has traveled the world over as your girls dissolved barriers and open doors, allowing the beauty and wisdom of the sacred feminine to take root and blossom from continent to continent. I so admire you, and I am honored to call you friend. It has been my honor over the years to have the girls at my events, to have had the conversations we've enjoyed together, to learn from you. Know that you have made a real difference. The women and men who come after you owe you much. You live on through your work, your wisdom, your awareness, your sacred roar. Thank you for your generosity, your friendship, your partnership. Forever shall your name pass our lips in love and admiration. And I said that uh, truly, truly from the heart. Uh, Lydia was something else. I mean, sometimes she would come all the way from Colorado to California, um, you know, if I was doing a special event. Uh, She participated in my anthology. She helped me with sacred sites. I remember when I wrote my first book, Sacred Places of Goddess, 108 Destinations, she was one of the women who was generous with uh, her experience of sacred places, you know, rather than holding the information close to the vest, you know, and not uh, not sharing information. So we love you, Lydia. And um, for any of my listeners, uh, I'm so honored that I've interviewed Lydia a few times, and her voice, uh, her spirit will always remain in the archives You can always uh, find it by going into the search box for Blog Talk and put her name, Lydia Rule, Voices of the Sacred Feminine, and the few interviews we have done um, will be there. You can access them anytime. So um, there's that. And uh, on a lighter note, um, I want to send congratulations out to Elder Wayshower Patrick McCullum for the award he received uh, recently. Uh, it, and the award was the Ralph Bunch International Peace Award. And um, I will tell you about it by way of Patrick's own words. Uh, he sent this to me, and I'm so happy to share it with you and uh, congratulate him because he is definitely one of the pagan elders out there in the world. Anybody and everybody who knows him knows that he's a goddess person. And, um, you know, he's just one of us out there showing the world what it is to uh, be her advocate. So anyway, here's what Patrick said about receiving the Ralph Bunch International Peace Award. Blessings to all my wonderful friends and colleagues. I wanted to share my Ralph Bunch International Peace Award with you before I hang it on the wall. 
It is such an honor to be included among such an august group of laureates, and Nelson Mandela in particular is such an icon for me, as are a number of the other recipients. Peace is such a challenging goal, as it denotes both an acceptance and a welcoming of the other. It requires each of us to recognize that the world doesn't revolve around each of us personally, but instead it revolves around three simple concepts. Number one, no matter what our cultural, scientific, or religious story is, we all have a common ancestor, creation itself, and so each and every one of us is family. Number two, diversity is sacred. Not one single human being is like any other, and we need to recognize that. Old narratives that promote the idea of everyone changing who they are to be like you is contrary to the universal truth. Instead, we need to strive to see the sacred in the other just as they are and to learn to appreciate them for their uniqueness. Number three, we each are like pieces of a giant puzzle. No piece has a higher value than another, and each piece has its place. It is only when each piece finds its kindred matches and where it properly fits within the whole that peace is possible. As for the award, as an artist myself, I am especially honored to have something crafted by Alex Shagan, the world-renowned metal sculptor and coin designer. Alex designed the medals for the Olympic Games, the logo for the Ronald Reagan Library, and the huge several-story-high bas-relief of the Reverend Martin Luther King. But for me, it is simply the energy conveyed by a great artist into the peace medal I now have that moves me. I will treasure this for the rest of my life. Many of us have devoted our lives toward creating a better world where peace prevails, and none of us do it to receive peace medals or awards, But I will tell you that having something that lets you know that your work is seen and that all of those years of sleepless nights and stressful situations and meditations and heartbreak are remembered makes it easier, at least for me, to continue moving forward. I'll sign off for now and move on to my next series of projects, but let us each recognize that we are all peace builders and that each and every step we take decides the future of us all. May peace prevail on earth, and may it begin with me. Those are the words of Patrick McCullum as he received the Ralph Bunch International Peace Award. Patrick Patrick has been on the show a number of times. He, too, like Lydia, um, or, uh, you know, you can hear him in the archives sharing so much of what he has done in the world. And, uh, it is true, you know, on a smaller scale, certainly, um, I uh, readily agree with him. You know, it makes so much difference when you know your work is appreciated. When you guys out there send me emails saying, you know, you listen to the show or you have a guest idea or it meant so much to hear this or that or um, some people have said this, even this show has changed their life, um, know that... Um, we need to hear that. Uh, people like Patrick, people like me, uh, other people I'm sure you know out there. So take a minute. Take a minute and um, send a thank you. Send an email. You know, let some leader in your community know that uh, what they're doing is making a difference. Uh, just those few words 
um, it makes such a difference. It uh, really is a gas in their tank. So congratulations, uh, Patrick McCullum. We are so proud to call you one of ours. And uh, one last thing before we get to Peggy. I appreciate her patience uh, as she uh, waits for me to get to her, and uh, I know it will well uh, be well worth waiting for. Uh, I'd like to read you a review uh, about Joe Carson's new book, Celebrate Wildness, and uh, the review is by Dana Corby in her blog, uh, The Rantin' Raven. And she says, uh, when people wonder aloud how the Wicca of Southern California became so much more nature-oriented and wild than the British traditions from which it arose, the one factor they don't take into account but should is feriferia. Feriferia, a word Fred Adams coined from Greek roots meaning wilderness festival, is a pagan tradition unlike any other. Based on Fred's visions of the divine feminine, the sacredness of Eros and the potential for intentional communities that truly do no harm to anything, it also draws upon themes familiar to Wiccans, such as sacred landscapes, prehistoric beliefs, and the fairy faith. Fred intended that Feriferia should lead the world into a paradisal future in which freedom, Eros, and play are the core values where that built upon human hands merges seamlessly into the wild and the fey romp among us. Celebrate Wildness is a unique, exquisite, and profound book. It created in me a sort of homesickness, a wistfulness for the idealist I was. We all were back when we and the world and the magic were all young and fresh. Though it's a short book and only 115 art-laden pages, don't expect to read it quickly. Take your time and let it sink into your subconscious. What bobs to the surface will truly be wondrous. Celebrate Wildness is an oversized, hardbound book on heavy paper. It's available for only $45 from org. And I'll spell that, F-E-R-A-F-E-R-I-A dot org. And I have to say, if you haven't uh, heard me say it before, Joe Carson gifted me with uh, a copy of that book, and everything the reviewers say is uh, is actually true. Uh, it, uh, it truly would make a good coffee table book. Uh, it would be a wonderful conversation starter. And... Um, Feriferia, I'm not sure a lot of people know about that. Uh, it's certainly a tradition uh, I think it would benefit all of us uh, if more people knew about. So uh, finally, I'm going to get uh, to Peggy here, and uh, I am unmuting her so she can chat with us. Uh, let me tell you a bit uh, about Peggy uh, before we actually start her interview, which we're calling Ancient Spirit Rising, uh, after her book title. Uh, Peggy Ayers, uh, she's an author and cultural visionary, occupied with challenging worldviews, contributing to the paradigm shift, and working with the decolonization process in herself and others. A Celtic animist who sees the world through a spiritual lens, she is a devotee of nature-based culture and all that is sacred to the earth. 
Peggy is an advocate for our interconnection with Earth community and the recovery of authentic ancestral wisdom and traditions for all people. She lives in the countryside on the outskirts of a place I cannot pronounce in another territory in Canada that I cannot pronounce <laughs> on a hilltop with views reaching for miles in all directions. And it truly sounds glorious. Um, her website uh, is stonecirclepress.com. That's stonecirclepress.com. Uh, Peggy, I invite you to speak and, and tell me where in the heck is it you live. Please pronounce um, your city and territory there in the Canadian woodlands. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm uh, outside of Toronto by about 45 minutes, so close to a great big city. And I live near the town or the city. I live near another city called Peterborough. And I've uh, put there in my bio um, the Anishinaabe name for this place, which is our local First Nations. So uh, it would be pronounced uh, Nogojiwanong would be the pronuncia- pronunciation. And I think okay. it's important to honor the territories of the First Nations people. Absolutely. Who's we live on. And, you know, when I see it spelled N-O-G-O-J-I-W-A-N-O-N-G, <laughs> it, it, uh, for some reason it made me think Australian. Um, oh, is there interesting, any, right. I mean, is there anything similar at all uh, between? No, no, it's just kind of interesting, that the spelling. Yeah, it is a little bit similar, but uh, no connection that I know of, no. Okay, all right. So let's um, let's get into it. And thank you for my pa- for your patience as I you know did that uh, those things that needed to be done you know uh, early on in the show. Um, so you've written this wonderful book now, um, Ancient Spirit Rising. Um, you know, was was there something special or unique about where it all started, or what your inspiration for it was? Well, I'm really, yeah, I'm very lucky to live in a great area. There's a, a lot of First Nations community nearby. <coughs> we have uh, Trent University, which is one of the first uh, Indigenous Studies department, uh, departments in North America. So I'm in this really rich, rich area of a lot of First Nations presence, a lot of cultural events and ceremonies people can go to by invitation and so on. So I've I've had a lot of proximity to uh, First Nations culture over the years. It's been, I've been very blessed and lucky to have that um, access. And uh, about six years ago, I was at an elders gathering that is hosted by Trent University. They have them each year. And I just heard something an elder said during one of the talks, uh, Professor James Dumont. And what he said during his talk was that, uh, a very simple, short statement, but it led me to write an entire book, which took three years in the writing. <laughs> so I'll just tell you what he said. It was very short. He said, um, everyone needs to return to their own indigenous knowledge. And it really struck me at the time. I thought, well, he's making a statement about uh, cultural appropriation, which I know is on everyone's mind um, these days. But it also made me wonder, like, where is our own Indigenous knowledge located as non-Native people? So that led me down my path of writing this book. It took three years. It's a very dense book. There's over um, 300 notes, <laughs> heavily annotated book. Um, and there's 40 pages of bibliography and a lot of suggested reading. So it's quite, it's quite a... Um, um, 
a dense uh, book. But it was so exciting to, to write it, uh, exciting for me to learn about all the movements that are going on all over the world. And uh, people are re- uh, returning to their indigenous knowledge in so many different ways. It isn't just one way. And so well, that's and what I've captured in my book are all these different movements that are going on. Well, that that is um, that is very interesting. And as you were saying it, you know, I sort of checked in with myself and thought, well, gee, I'm not sure how how I would even uh, begin to do that myself. You know, maybe your you know your book would offer me some suggestions. Um, and uh, you know, in speaking of cultural appropriation, um, you know, sometimes. I'm not sure if if this actually qualifies as cultural appropriation, but I know when I was first called to goddess, it was the Egyptian goddess Isis that Mm -hmm. called me, you know, like like she calls so many women. And, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe somewhere back in my DNA and past lives or something, you know, maybe I lived in that part of the world. Um, Mm -hmm. But uh, for those of us, who, uh, you know, feel called to a deity, um, you know, that doesn't have a lot to do with our, um, you know, with our ancestry, um, you know, sometimes it's uh, it's difficult to reconcile that. Yeah, I think so. I think going back in history is, um, it's quite a large discussion, and it's very controversial, but I think the farther back in time you go, the less you're going to encounter that uh, relationship between um, the oppressor and the oppressed, which is very current and very still contemporary on Turtle Island. So I think this question of cultural appropriation really just applies to countries that have been recently um, experiencing colonization in terms of their indigenous populations. So if an indigenous culture is objecting and you're using something from their culture and they're vocally you know, telling you they're objecting to it, then that would be termed cultural appropriation. But something from an ancient culture, I think, is in a different category. Well, good. So I'm off the hook there. But, um, yeah, yeah, I um, I can see where, I mean, the way, uh, you know, Americans came across the United States with their manifest destiny and basically uh, committed genocide, you know, to Mm -hmm. the Native Americans um, and, you know, and, and then started to appropriate their uh, you know, ideas as, uh, you know, some, you know, as it became cool, you know, mm-hmm. to uh, learn about this indigenous stuff. Uh, yeah, I, I know there's been, um, I, you know, I, I guess it's a, it's a kind of a double-edged sword. You know, you, you want to maybe incorporate uh, the wisdom from these indigenous people, but um, you have to be very careful uh, that uh, you do it in such a way that, um, you know, there isn't this cultural appropriation. Well, exactly, and a, a lot of First Nations elders are really advocating that, you know, we all do turn to indigenous roots, which is what I initially heard from the elder. So it's, um, you know, there are boundaries that are there. We have to respect the boundaries, but it doesn't mean that we can't um, re-indigenize our own life ways. You know, if we go back in time, it's kind of like based on our own ancestry, mm-hmm. and I, I kind of advocate for that, but... It's loose and it's not a firm and fast rule, and there are so many different paths to to take. But um, authenticity is going to mean different things to different people. And True. there's no one out there really being a cultural appropriation cop, cop at this point, <laughs> even though sometimes <laughs> I go into spaces. I've, I've got like a bullseye pointed, painted on my back, but... <laughs> 
Well, shoot, you know, let's not say that too loud. I mean, with the privatizations of prisons here in the United States, if they could figure out another way to put more people in jail and make money off of us, cultural oh, appropriation might be the next uh, thing they pass <laughs> yeah, as right. law to, um, you know, uh, oppress us <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, with the predator capitalism the way it is. Oh, um, dear. <laughs> and, you know, cultural is appropriation is not new news. It's been around for a long, long time. Yeah, people I know. have known I'm, about this for ages, but... If our cultural group seems to have a really hard time stopping this practice, yeah. and it's even flourishing today. Every day I see things all over that people just aren't aware that they're taking the spiritual or the cultural property from a culture they shouldn't be you know, yeah. taking it. They just feel they have free access, and I think it's all tied in with our notion of uh, entitlement. And we've been taught that we um, are allowed to have access to these spaces, and, you know, we are members of the dominant society. We have white privilege, yeah. whether we belong to the pagan world or not. I mean, that doesn't yeah. really get you. That's not a pass card from being well, not yeah, part of the dominant society. You're still part of that um, colonizer class. Even though we try to deconstruct it through paganism, we're still, like, initially, that's well, yeah, the work we have to do. Me, you're making me think how much was appropriated uh, from pagans by the Christians, you know, yeah. uh, <laughs> you know, talk about cultural appropriation. Interesting. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, um, but, it's, well, so how does one, um, uh, you know, start to locate uh, their authentic uh, ancestral uh, traditions? You know, I, I mean, the things yeah. that come to mind for me would be, number one, maybe go into Ancestry.com, you know, those sorts of things. Oh, exactly, or are there these tests now that you can actually have your DNA checked to see what yeah. part of the world you come from? But are, are those the kinds of things you're talking about, or are you talking yeah, about other well, things? Yeah, well, that's really wonderful. I think in the broad sense, matriarchal studies, goddess spirituality, just the pagan world in general, is, you know, doing a wonderful job at recovering the old ways. You know, all these frameworks are and movements are already happening. But I guess in my book, what I advocate is to get a little more specific about it and I kind of advocate for uh, reconstructionism more than a more uh, general sort of um, framework and that does mean going to Ancestry.com or one of these other amazing um, sites and, and there's never been a time in human history when we didn't have more access to to our own ancestral records you know you can get, you can get your DNA tested and the really amazing thing is that through the archaeology, they've done all of this um, testing, DNA testing all over the world from all the different archaeology sites on human remains. So they've been able to chart the DNA all across the planet. It's gone into like a database. So if you get your DNA tested and they match it up with where that particular pattern has been all over the planet, you can actually find out uh, where your people have traveled, you know, up to the last um, 30 years, 30,000 years I had my uh, mother line traced. Wow. And that is just phenomenal. I'm from a Celtic group of uh, genetic um, ancestry, and through this one company in uh, the U.K., I was able to trace it to uh, specific places where that DNA has been in France and then... Um, in the UK. Wow. So it's really empowering. Like if you can narrow it down to exactly who your people are going back through time, it can be an incredibly empowering feeling. 
Well, you know, I've I've had this, and I've been wanting to do that, you know, but it's like, okay, where do I find Ooh. the time? Like maybe between 2 and right. 3 a.m., but I've sort of allocated <laughs> that hour to sleep, you know. But, yeah. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, but I've wanted to do that, uh, and I guess part of me hasn't started yet because I I – you know, just, you know, you think, oh, uh, you know, I'm probably not going to go back far enough to, uh, you know, for it to be of any consequence. Um, you know, maybe I won't even be able to go back far enough to take me across the pond over into Europe, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, I mean, are there, I mean, but I guess what I'm... It I'm, does, though. I'm, it tells exactly that, that uh, information just from one saliva test. From your DNA, they can tell exactly where your ancestors have been. It's just okay. amazing. It's incredible science. It was so uh, two hundred fifty dollars sh- when I initially had it. I think it's down to ninety dollars. So the price keeps going down yeah. too, in terms of these DNA tests. <laughs> but these are, but now these are two different things. One is actually tra- tracing your more immediate ancestors, your grandmother's 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 grandmother, and the DNA test. Well, that that will go back beyond what written record will show. Is, am I yes. understanding that right? Yes, and there's there's different companies. I don't. I'm not exactly sure, but Ancestry.com. But the company I ordered um, my testing from was uh, Oxford Ancestors in the UK, and they're the ones that match it up with the geography. So you may oh, okay. have to do a little bit of research on your own through Ancestry.com. I'm not sure if they actually match it up with the um, geography, but this other company certainly does, and the, and the knowledge is out there to find out you know, exactly where your people have been. And so now let me ask you, though, because you're talking mm-hmm. about really delving deeper, though. I mean, you're not talking about let's just find out where we came from. You're talking about digging into their traditions, right? I mean, you're taking it to the next level. Yeah, so once you know that information, like, for example, they eliminated all these other ethnicities in my DNA, and it's just strictly Celtic, so it's actually a Scottish DNA through my mother line, I had my mitochondrial DNA tested. You can have the paternal DNA done as well, but for some reason they tend to stress that the the mitochondrial DNA somehow gets more results. I may be wrong about this science. I'm not exactly sure about the exact science. but um, So once you have that information, then you can go to the historical record. You can go to the ancient myths. You know, maybe it's 500 years ago, maybe it's 1,000 years ago, but there is material available. There's oral histories that have been written down. You can even go to the places if you're from ancient Scotland. You can travel there. You can go to these places where your ancestors would have lived. So, like, the evidence is all around us. It's just, um, it's not all that difficult. And and so then w- once we get that, what are you saying we should do with it? Well, recreate it. That's what the Reconstructionism movement movements are doing right now. Mm-hmm. Celtic mm-hmm. Reconstruction, the heathen community, and you know, to the to the best of your ability. I mean, we do live in a modern world, so it's not absolutely um, going to be you know authentic. But there's a lot of people that are like recovering these lifeways, and you know, with the material culture, with the ceremonies, the rituals, the songs. You know, to the best of their ability, they're they're recreating these um, ancient lifeways. Right, And I often right. think of the matriarchal society, like if your DNA went back to 
the culture that was in uh, where Malta is these days. I forget the name of the ancient matriarchal society, but if you could trace your DNA there and uh, recreate that environment in today's world, there's nothing really stopping people from doing that. That's pretty cool. <laughs> like that's authentic, right? <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, um, the group yeah. I used to, uh, my husband and I had a not-for-profit in the 90s, and mm-hmm. uh, it was called the ISIS Ancient Culture Society, and that's exactly what we used to do. Now, granted, you know, we didn't trace back our ancestors to Egypt, but because we felt this affinity with, yeah. uh, you know, with the Egyptian mm-hmm. culture, mm-hmm. Uh, we uh, recreated ancient rituals of ISIS uh, in a contemporary context, you know, and, and what that sort of looks like, for instance, you know, just to give listeners an example, if they haven't heard me say this before, because I don't talk about this too much, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, in, in uh, ISIS used to have an annual um, festival uh, called the Ploephysia, or the Festival of Ships, I think it uh, was, uh, the you know, the translation, loosely mm-hmm. translated. And uh, what they used to do was, um, uh, you know, it was usually held in cities that were on uh, on bodies of water, and people would, you know, come from years, or, you know, from miles and miles around, and uh, they would have these uh, processions. And it, uh, some people think that these were maybe the first parades, you know, oh, and wow. people would would dress in, um, you know, their best clothing or costumes, and they would carry mini altars on a on the top of a stick. Uh, they they walked with wild animals on leashes. Uh, men dressed as women, women dressed as men. I mean, it was a carnival, you know. And uh, and, and they followed behind um, uh, usually, you know, the, the, the priest class would be carrying Isis on some sort of a uh, a boat or a litter or some sort of, you know, uh, mobile, uh, let's call it a float, <laughs> um, you know, for those people who know about Mardi Gras and parades on a float, and everybody <laughs> followed behind her, and uh, when they got wow. to the harbor or, you know, the, the riverside or whatever it was, uh, there was a boat there laden with offerings um, that were, you know, for ISIS, and they would launch the ship. And I always wondered, well, you know, they couldn't, I mean, could they have actually launched that ship into the sea or down the river and nobody went and grabbed it and claimed it later and took all of the good stuff that was on it? That that nobody ever writes about. But, um, you know, they, they actually would launch this boat. And, well, what we did, I mean, we obviously couldn't build a boat. I mean, we created an elaborate procession. Um, very much like what I just described, you know, to the best of our ability. And instead of launching, uh, you know, a wooden boat, we made ice boats. And everybody had um, who came to the beach, cause, and we did it on the Pacific Ocean, so everybody who came out to the beach for the ritual would be given a colored, we, we made these ice boats in our freezer. We started like three months ahead. They were in the shape of a boat. They were colored with food coloring. And everybody was handed one, and they were at, at the you know at the appropriate time they were to breathe into the boat their prayer uh, or their petition oh, nice. you know, mm-hmm. and then they would launch it onto the waves, and that was our 
uh, reconstructing of an ancient ritual, you know, from the you know giant wooden boat down to a <laughs> ecologically safe, you know, ice boat. <laughs> right. That's so beautiful. What's fascinating is that this um, history was accessible. I mean, these ancient records are somehow kept. You know, the stories are there. The history has trickled down to us. So, I mean, it's just amazing when you think of the access we have, especially these days with the Internet. There's just so much information available. So what's come down to us through the ages, it's just really amazing. It's a very exciting time to be looking at these wonderful traditions and kind of rejuvenating them. Because what's the alternative, right? Capitalism and empire and patriarchal um, craziness. So, I mean, it's a a good time to just follow our own ethnic cultural tradition. Yeah, it adds adds riches to our life where these other (laughs) things, like you just mentioned, I mean, that's, I mean, I hate to say it, but that just demoralizes us and oppresses us. Yeah. Um, but exactly. but now but what's in, but you know part of what you want to talk about tonight and and forgive me if I'm I'm leading the conversation a bit astray. I know you want to talk more about you know um, how not culturally appropriating. Uh, you know, you see that as social justice activism, and I think you maybe wanted to uh, draw. Uh, you know, as an ex- use as an example, the settler society and the First Nations. Did you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, I just want to say that the cultural appropriation phenomenon—it's just part of a larger picture. It comes from um, sort of the New Age smorgasbord. We've all had this amazing buffet of practices to just choose from, but I think it, it's, it, it stems from a much wider. Um, systemic racism that we've all we've all been uh, exposed to since we were born into this culture. I don't think any of us were not sort of taught these um, crazy principles when we were young children. So I think it's really important to just be aware of the racism within ourselves and to deconstruct that and just be aware. It's called implicit bias when you're not an um you're not particularly a racist person, but you still carry these little things that come out from time to time. Right, and right. So it, it's all connected, and cultural appropriation is just one aspect of um, of being members of the dominant society. And then, of course, the, the flip side of that is what can we do to make um, our relationships better with First Nations? You know, there's a lot of healing that needs to be done there, and there's a role that we can certainly play in in social justice. There's um, a great framework available called allyship, um, which brings us close to First Nations community in a good way. It's got nothing to do with appropriating or, you know, leaning into their culture. It's um, assisting them in their social justice struggles and by helping them reclaim lands and waterways you know, precious ecosystems, those places are also going to be preserved for the rest of us. So there's a lot of really good reasons for us to be um, engaged with social justice right now on behalf of First Nations people. Yeah. You know, they're not invisible to us. You know, find out who's the First Nation community in your own area, Um, who are they, what are they thinking, what are their struggles, what are they involved with right at the moment, and then, you know, Start helping out where you can. I think it's um, a really important role we can take on right now. Yeah. Well, and for listeners who don't maybe understand this idea of privilege, you know, maybe if we put it mm. in the context 
uh, in the context of, you know, we always talk about male privilege. You know, right. how men men don't realize the male privilege that they have because they've always had it and they don't know that they have it uh, because they've never lived their life as anything other than a man. But just exactly. let them, you know, live their life as a woman and suddenly maybe they find out they only make 80 cents on the dollar. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, you know, so, so that's a, you know that there would be an example of gender you know gender privilege or we all know about a class privilege, you know, the rich. Right. I mean, look, look, O.J. Yeah. Simpson got away with it, you know. Absolutely. Um, Those are, that's called the intersectional oppressions. And I think the social justice world, they've actually agreed that there's five of them. They call it, you have five nickels in the quarter. So it's like race, you know, with white at the top and then people of color below. Um, gender, of course, men are supposed to be superior to women. Then there's the class one that sort of... Um, takes precedence it, it sort of affects all of the oppressions is is the um the issue of whether uh someone has a lot of money or not that seems to sort of uh, trump everything excuse the expression trump and then there's a disability aspect there's people with able body health good health and they're never really aware that there's people that don't have access or that are marginalized because of their disability yeah yeah, actually, and, I, and you know, thank you oh, for saying that. Oh, and I forgot the fifth one. Yeah, the, the fifth one was uh, heterosexual compared to the um, LBGT community. So yeah. people that, like, are supposed to have normal sexuality are supposed to be um, superior to everybody else. Right. So these are all the right. false hierarchies. There's no truth in them, but it was all established by the patriarchy. Yeah, yeah, good old <laughs> patriarchy. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> they did it. So uh, yeah, they I mean, yeah, they they can be blamed for so much. <laughs> mm-hmm. exactly so right. um, so so, what are some of the most important things that we can do to fix, um, you know, these these sort of broken uh, relationships or these uh, cultural appropriations, you know, beyond awareness? I mean, we're making people aware tonight, but mm. um, you know, is there anything that the average person can actually do? Yes, and, and, and so many different things to choose from. I think, you know, it gets very um, frustrating or it gets overwhelming. There's just so many problems you don't really know where to start. But I guess what I advocate in my book is to sort of choose your battles. You know, you can start somewhere, and it's basically that social justice aspect. Um, and making, and, you know, the education is so important that there's, a lot of people in our own um, kinship groups and in our own circles that just they don't even understand yet the history of colonization and what happened to First Nations people um, and all the different things that have happened. So I just think making other people aware is extremely important. Yeah. And working yeah, toward restitution uh, and reconciliation is kind of the next step. Here in Canada, we have a wonderful movement going right now. Uh, for reconciliation. It's kind of like every city is hopefully going to adopt these 94 recommendations. So there's a lot of hopeful um, movements happening toward um, healing and reconciliation with First Nations. So there's a lot to get involved in, put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, and, and I guess, you know, depending on where you live, you know, you, you have to sort yeah. of just check check around and, 
and yes. see what's going on. I mean, I know here in the United States, um, uh, you know, all too often we hear about corporations trying to steal sacred lands or yes. uh, for mining problem. or, you know, yes. some somehow stealing, you know, more from, you know, the Native Americans than, um, than, than they've already had stolen from them. You know, they're, exactly. Uh, and, and that's why um, cultural appropriation is just another aspect of stealing. It's a it's a it's a, a continuation of the, of the same original theft. First yeah. it's the land, then it's the then it's the elements of the culture. Yeah. So it's yeah, like the absolutely. same colonizer phenomena. When you really look deeply into cultural appropriation, that's that's just how wrong it is. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, did did you want to talk a little bit about what allyship theory was? Well, uh, I think I sort of touched on that framework, um, you know, just getting involved with social justice and the cross-cultural become relationships. Become an ally, you're saying. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're saying become an ally of these people who need need uh, need support to fight exactly. to fight the oppressor. <laughs> And allyship covers all of the different intersectional oppressions. A man who calls himself a feminist, he's an ally on behalf of women. Right, right. So it, it can work with any of the different oppressions, and you can yeah. you can be an ally for any manner of different well, you know, I hadn't heard struggling. that before. Is, is is that something <laughs> yeah. you came up with, or is that you know is is that just a is that a term out there, allyship theory? Oh, yes, it's a definite theory that it's been going for about 20 years now. It originated in um, academia that the relationships of First Nations people working with non-Native people, and they needed sort of a framework in this coming together. And it it initially got going, and, uh, you know, one person wrote um, a description of it, and then uh, another academic came along, or or activists. The activists have been hugely um, successful in, in expanding ally theory, and now it's it's an extremely um, wonderful framework. Like there's a lot of material material out there on it. Okay. It's not okay. A, it's not a well kept secret. It's like uh, Google. <laughs> okay. Right. Okay. Well, thank Al- you yeah, for I would that, go allyship know? theory when you would like get all these wonderful um, explanations and so on. Okay. Well, and yeah, thank you for great. that because you know you that uh, you've taught me something tonight. I've never heard of that before. Um, oh, wonderful. <laughs> yeah. So now um, you talk about reclaiming our own indigenous mind. Um, yeah. Tell us what, what you mean by that. Well, I think that part of the um, problem is even like reacting to climate change, we're so indoctrinated with um, Western values, Western ways of thinking. You know, we're a product of our own civilization. And I think part of that um, unlearning or like decolonizing, we have to – take out all this colonization in ourselves that we've been uh, brainwashed with. So, uh, you know, it's wonderful to shift to a different way of thinking. It's not going to happen overnight, but there's, you know, wonderful models to follow. And it's just, um, I actually um, compiled an amazing chart in my book of of Western thinking, the way Western thinking operates and how indigenous mind operates. It isn't really like a versus you know, either or, because there's parts of Western thinking that are still quite useful. We don't want to give up maybe every single thing. And then there's some things maybe in indigenous mind that aren't quite that useful in today's world. But it's kind of like making that shift. And it's 
it all starts with, you know, the way people think. Okay. It's kind of um, like there's really not enough time right now to give so many good examples, but I think if you've um, looked into animism and the way animism, animists operate in the world, that would be a great example of indigenous mind. Okay, so it, yeah. it, it well, it, it would it uh, could we sort of um, say in a nutshell maybe um, it's the idea of everything is sacred. It's our inner connection. Um, it's not having a separation between you know like people used to think you know they didn't really separate um, the sacred from their mundane life. Absolutely, that's a really good way of of um, explaining it. That's one of the aspects. That, okay. That's sort of at the root of it, for sure. Yeah. yeah because, I could read you know, a little it, bit out of my book that sort of touches on it. Okay. Yes, it's a short little uh, part. So this is about Indigenous mind. Um, beyond our world of modern complexity and technology, the truth of the tribal human soul and the touch of the tribal human hand continue to manifest. And the guiding forces are already in place for the collective recovery of our ancient spirit and our return to eco-soul. We have eternal access to a deep well of ancestral knowing. The divine pattern lives on in our DNA, and Gaia's matrix in the web of all life sustain us with an everlasting restoration of healing and new growth. And even though urbanized humanity seems to be able to live with the illusion of separation from the natural world, and it may appear that we have given up on the earth, the harmonic intelligence in the great heart in nature is waiting, and the earth has not given up on us. Mm, that's beautiful. So it's really like spending time in nature, and that's really where everything sort of comes into focus when you can just get away from all of the man-made infrastructure, take mm-hmm. yourself out to a natural place, spend time there, and I just think natu- indigenous mind just happens naturally in, in most cases. Yeah, we kind of fall back into it because it's probably yeah. very primal. Um, exactly. But, but we, we just, you know, living in our concrete buildings with our freeways and uh, televisions and gadgets, we've exactly. just, just yeah. we've unplugged. <laughs> we've unplugged That's from so it. So absolutely true. <laughs> so um, get, back, is, get back to the to the forest. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Um, so... Um, um, you make a case, you know, for cultural recovery along mm-hmm. ethno-cultural lines. So how does this go against the prevailing memes of uh, universalism or um, we are all one? Oh, um, well, this is just a personal um, discourse that I have. I've looked um, for a long, long time at um, the we are all one um, expressions and the different memes, and I've just come to sort of disagree with it. I think it doesn't exactly um, promote authenticity in people because it kind of gives you automatically a green light. Like if your ancestors are everyone's ancestors and there's no specific um, continuity, then it, it allows for cultural appropriation because you're saying, well, if my ancestors belong to anywhere, anytime, I can you know, take up any spiritual tradition that I feel like. So that's one issue I've seen with it. Also, we are all one. The the meme seems to be coming from the dominant society. Like, it's mostly white people that are talking about we are all one, which I find kind of um, silly in a way because it's like um, 
it's one thing to say it, but are these people actually doing the, you know, engaging with the political process or engaging with social justice to create the conditions of actual um, equality in the real world so that eventually it does become we are all one? You see, there's all these, you know, we don't live in a yeah. post-racial society as yet, so there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And by just saying we are all one doesn't necessarily make it. Oh. Yeah, yeah, and and if you say that, <laughs> well, I have it's, problems it's, with it. Yeah, I mean, and and by saying we are all one, it's in a way, it's it's it sort of feels disingenuous because exactly. we know it's not yeah. true. Um, right. And I can I, I can see what you mean, you know, um, because yeah. uh, it's this idea of oh, we are a melting pot, mm. and we we yeah. want this we want this unity. I think mm. because mm. in unity there's maybe harmony but mm-hmm. but then if everybody's white bread i, I mean right. then what about the yeah. gumbo you know that's the that's um, the default they say we're all one but what is the default it's like everyone has to still conform to white culture right really right. is what they're saying <laughs> yeah exactly yeah exactly. and i also think of people of color that would hear this expression i think they would be very insulted you know they still experience racism and oppression every yeah. day of their lives, and then they're hearing people say, we're all one, and I just think it would be very, very insulting to, to have to hear that. Yeah, and it calls on some, <laughs> it, it calls on certain people to conform to the mm-hmm. ruling cl- ruling class, so to speak, yes, I think. exactly. Uh, I think a better like, expression is uh, unity in, in diversity. I love that yeah. one. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. That's good mm-hmm. because you know we can all we can have solidarity without yeah. giving up our authentic selves or our um, uh, what, what you would call you know our uh, I, I guess our indigenous or our uh, uh, our, our ancestral heritage. Exactly, our sort of ethnocultural origins and you know the different practices. I think diversity. Is so important. I only, I think, the only thing that's been missing is to have respect for difference. You know, yeah. throughout history, like there's just my group is better than your group, and all of these different um, uh, issues and wars and so on. But I think the only thing missing is really to have a, a peaceful, co- a feeling of peaceful coexistence and just to respect each other's diversity. That's what we have and- to work on. And what did you call it again? A unity of diversity? Was that uh, was, unity was that? in diversity? Unity in diversity. I like that. I'm going to have to write that down and remember it uh, because it, that, that, unity. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That that is. Uh, I think that is very important. Um, uh, it, and then there you go with the, the you know the dominator privilege again, mm-hmm. um, you know because it's like saying okay well just be normal well who decides what's normal yeah you know? well exactly yeah. you know it's you know like I get a that default yeah yeah so and white um, people white people are running the show again which yeah. You know, yeah, we're always yeah. running everything. <laughs> well, yeah, and I mean, and, and well, you're in Canada. I mean, I don't know how much you follow American politics, but oh, I huge! Mean, yes, we follow uh, every day. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, the old white people in the United States. I wish they would just all die. You know, I mean, that's a horrible <laughs> thing to say, but you know, but they're the they're oh the ones God. that are like so afraid of diversity. Yeah. It seems like you know. Yeah. They're, 
and they're the ones standing in the way of harmony and progress. And um, I mean, I know it's fear, and and I don't literally mean mm-hmm. I wish they would all die. I mean, that what a horrible thing to say. I, if I could <laughs> yeah. pull it back and and stuff it back in, I would. But it, but it's you know, just, it's so hard. To, why is it so hard to overcome the brainwashing? Like I just don't get it. You know, it you know, shouldn't I, be that I, hard to get this this kind of like these. Uh, outdated notions out of your brain like why is it so difficult for people i just don't get it you know i don't i don't either you know um mm-hmm. i guess it depends on whether we look at change fearfully or we look at mm-hmm. change as an adventure you know mm-hmm. um yeah. I, I mean you know change doesn't scare me but i no. but i but i would imagine that um i, I bet I, I not imagine i know that it changes other people, uh, you know, it, it scares mm-hmm. other people, you know. Um, yeah. But, I mean, but uh, I don't know, it, it's, a, it's a big conversation. But, I, I mean, I look at all of these people who are so fearful about gay marriage. Right. Well, nobody's <laughs> making them marry a gay person. Their lives don't have to change. But, exactly. you know, why they're would just you? so threatened. Like, why are they so threatened? It's like they're losing something. Like, maybe they're not going to be in power anymore. I don't know. They just feel like. It's so threatening to some people. Yeah, I mean, it's like if they're not calling the shots, then um, they're they're sort of quaking in their boots. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) It's a strange phenomena. Yeah. Too much division in the Republican Party too. That's all I can say. <laughs> well, you know, I I keep thinking. We follow to politics. We follow American politics very closely here in Canada. So, what do what do what do Canadians think about um, the uh, Ted Cruz and Donald Trump? Well, we're just terrified of of um, Donald Trump. He just represents you know so many things that our society is working toward transcending. We just got a wonderful new prime minister. Here in Canada, he calls himself a feminist, and We're he's jealous. doing the gay pride parade, <laughs> and he, yeah. he's just doing some wonderful things. So and a he very has such progressive a young guy. Sorry? Yeah, a diverse cabinet too. Um, Absolutely, you know, we, gender parity. Yeah, gender like, parity. Wow. It seems like all different uh, spiritualities, possibly Absolutely. too. Absolutely, it's just a, yeah. it's a pretty exciting time. So these are steps forward, and it just seems like Trump is like a huge step in the wrong direction it's like a step backwards it's just absolutely terrifying and uh i think um cruz is not much better he's got some very antiquated ideas and he's very um fascist yeah but we love bernie saunders up here Oh, you know, I'm a Bernie girl. I don't know if you've heard any of my shows, but, yeah, definitely Bernie is for me. But oh, let me yeah. just say something about Trump, and then I'll get back to Bernie. Um, Trump, you know, I, I keep thinking Trump could do us a real service. I don't think oh. he really has a chance of getting elected president. I oh, really don't. And and maybe I'm crazy, but as, as dumb as a lot of Americans are, I don't think there's enough that are that dumb. Okay. Uh, because We're I mean, wondering look, that in Canada, honest to God. <laughs> well, look, you know, Fox How News How dumb has, are the Americans? We're just wondering. <laughs> well, well, you know, Fox News has dumbed down so many Americans for so long. You know, it's yeah, almost not, not their fault. But, yeah. but you know, I, I think the service that Trump is really doing, honestly, mm-hmm. if we think about it, it mm-hmm. is really holding a mirror to the Republican Party. And well, for I, sure. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, mm-hmm. I can remember 10 years ago, people were not seeing the Republicans for what they are. 
You right. know, and I, I think now they finally are. And if he fractures the party, then yeah. maybe they'll go away. You know, maybe he so kinda, is, he's kind of clearing out the nonsense. You know, some of them are really <laughs> freaked out that he said women are going to get public, punished for having an abortion. And yeah. so many Republicans didn't, you know, they're really upset about that. So it's kind of like clearing a lot of um, issues in that particular party. So and then Ted Cruz. Well, you know, then the, the issue with Ted Cruz that the media has not even touched on yet, and I don't know if it's because they're really, I mean, they're, they're inept. I mean, they're, they're totally inept, and right. I don't know if, if they're that way because of their corporate owners or because they just don't care to do their homework. But Ted Cruz is a dominionist evangelical, and those are some scariest people. You know, oh, um, yes, absolutely. He's almost and, as terrifying as Trump is. Yeah. His uh, values and, and his, yeah, his, his love of guns. Well, me. Americans are all crazy about guns, but he's kind of all over the top. Well, and, and honestly, the dominionist evangelical stuff scares me more than the Trump stuff. It really oh does. Gosh. Wow. Because it feels like he would institute a theocracy just given half a chance, you know. Yes. Yeah, um, that's sort of the impression that I have of him as well. Yeah, yeah. So, so anyway, yeah, so a lot of interesting two. things going on right now. I know, I know. I'm just glad they changed uh, the name ISIS back to ISIL so that our beloved goddess isn't being called that any longer. Well, you know, They're that all, doesn't yeah, happen too ISIL. often here in our news. They're still saying ISIS pretty much. Oh, really? Uh, oh, they changed it here in Canada. Thank goodness. Well, you're, well you know, you're more progressive. Peggy, you know, I, was there anything more about um, your topic that maybe you wanted to cover that I you know, maybe haven't thought to ask you? I think um, just recovering the old ways, there's uh, a timeless knowledge there that we can learn from indigenous societies and without appropriating. And I, I think a lot of the elders and activists, uh, we are welcome in the, in the spaces with First Nations. It isn't like um, we're, we're totally, you know, on the outskirts. It's, it's just that um, we are welcome just to be authentic to our own um, um, ancestry. And right. beyond that, it's in a very exciting time right now. It's like we're waking from a bad dream. You know, I, you know I, we've been I, taught I, to ignore the holistic connections, and now um, we're recovering all of those wonderful um, ways of life connected to the land. So it's a very good time right now. Uh, you know, I think so. In spite of all the negative stuff out there, I find myself mm-hmm. being very hopeful. And and Absolutely. I think I, I and I honestly think that um, you know and I, and I won't harp on the subject, but I honestly think Bernie Sanders' campaign has filled so many people with hope. You know, uh, I look For on sure. Facebook and people say stuff yeah. like, um, "He makes me be the best person I can be." Mm-hmm. You know, he he inspires me to do good. You know, Absolutely. when have we ever heard uh, people <laughs> talk like that about politicians, you know? Absolutely. <laughs> it, it's just been it so long. It would be long. a totally new era in, in America yeah. if, he, if he came into the White House. It would be, I think it would be the time we've all been waiting for. 
Well, you see, I feel like it's part of the paradigm shift. If, Absolutely, um, yes. If, if something can happen to push Clinton out, I don't know if it's these Panama Papers or it's the FBI yeah. investigation or it's simply something happens and Bernie goes to the convention and wins the nomination and it's just a straight shot to the White mm-hmm. House. I don't know, but um, yeah. I, I, I just can't imagine. <laughs> I don't know. I, I worry what's going to happen to the people uh, like me. Uh, who are Bernie or bust, kind of, um, you know, will we be so demoralized if he doesn't make it that all everything he's awakened just sort of um, goes away, you know? Right, and yeah, that would, that would not be good. I've, I have read in different essays, though, that it's uh, mobilizing people's activism more than ever, but it's not as if we already haven't been practicing so much activism and so much resistance and so much social change but now it's got to get even even stronger in the future yeah we have to ratchet it up and i have to say you know maybe in canada Mm -hmm. people have been awake but here in the united states um Mm -hmm. most people have been asleep and i Mm -hmm. i think bernie bernie has woken up a sleeping dragon you know Um, yeah he's got the most wonderful values so progressive and it's 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 incredible well, and, and, you know, talking of, we were talking a minute ago about how can these old Republicans not, you know, be the way they are. I mean, mm-hmm. it's so crazy when you hear people say the Bernie people just want free stuff, you know. Well, <laughs> I, I mean, it, this idea of, um, uh, you know, the, the, the way people have been conditioned to vote against their own interests mm-hmm. uh, is mind-boggling, you know. Absolutely. Uh, it, it, it's, uh, it's as if, you know, uh, it's been so bad here for so long. They're they're all um, uh, masochists, you know, and and they, they want to right. Yeah, that's a good <laughs> point. <laughs> they throw around this socialism word all the time too, and nobody really understands what socialism is, and it certainly isn't what Bernie Sanders, Sanders represents. It's got nothing to do with our current democracy system, really, in any country. But people just keep throwing it around like socialism. So. It's very I, I know. Uh, even one of our, uh, one of uh, MSNBC is one of our supposedly, but uh, supposedly liberal news, uh, you know, uh, cable news channels. And oh. um, there's there's this one guy on it that he just fear mongers about socialism oh, all the right. time. And you know, you wonder is he that stupid or is he just yeah, trying to keep like, his job because his corporate owners? Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, there's there's no journalistic integrity, you know. But Absolutely anyway, that's a, right. a whole other subject, and I actually have some yeah. guests coming up. Um, oh that gosh, are, we're now I want to go get my news fix for the day. <laughs> anyway, well, well, Peggy, so good talking uh, please, to you, Karen. Well, and and before you say goodbye, please um, tell listeners uh, if you have any closing words, your website, um, you know, anything you'd like to say to, um, you know put the finishing touches on our interview oh sure i am uh, my book is available on amazon.com called ancient spirit rising and through my website as well www.stonecirclepress.com and i have all kinds of local events coming up and some webinars but it's all listed on my website there's quite a bit of uh, material to go through right now but a lot of good things planned for this year. It's a very exciting time promoting a new book. 
Well, good luck with that. And, well, thank uh, you, Karen. I, it's so good to I, be here with you. Well, I, I appreciate you being on and sharing the wisdom you've shared, and I know how hard it is to promote a book. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, may you may you have much tenacity, energy, and strength. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, thank you, Peggy. Good night. Okay, great. Thanks, Karen. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, I hope you've enjoyed Peggy. Uh, it was sure fun uh, chatting with her tonight. And um, uh, I wonder if uh, if you heard my last interview, uh, the last show that I did uh, with feminist Muslim Asra Namani. Um, well, she was talking about feminism and Islam. And um, you might not have thought there was such a thing, but there is. So if uh, you didn't catch that show yet, uh, please do. It was just a week or so ago. Uh, Anyway, part of our conversation was that she has written a Bill of Rights for Muslim women um, in the mosque and in the bedroom. Now, we, we referred to it during the interview, but we didn't talk a lot about it. And some of you wrote saying you wanted to hear more of that. Um, so I thought I would read a few of those rights uh, that she's calling for for Muslim women, um, and uh, here they are. Uh, this is this is uh, really sort of game-changing stuff. You know, Azra in her book. Um, standing Alone, an American Woman's Struggle for the Soul of Islam. Uh, she is really blazing an important trail, I think, with her pink-handled machete, as I like to say we're doing, doing our pink-handled machete thing. Um, but, you know, so many people have this distorted view of Islam because of ignorance or the media or terrorism and all of that. And, uh, you know, it, it isn't just those negative things you hear. Uh, in the in the news. So anyway, in the back of her book, um, she's got the Islamic Bill of Rights for uh, women in mosques, and I'll read just a couple of these. There's ten, but I'll just sort of uh, randomly pick a few. Uh, women have a right uh, have an Islamic right to enter a mosque. Women have an Islamic right to enter through the main door. Women have an Islamic right to visual and auditory access to the main sanctuary. Women have an Islamic right to pray in the main sanctuary without being separated by a barrier, including in the front and in mixed-gender congregational lines. Women have an Islamic right to address any and all members of the congregation. Women have an Islamic right to hold leadership positions, including positions as prayer leaders and as members of the board of directors and management committees. Women have uh, an Islamic right to full uh, to be full participants in all congregational activities. Women have an, have an Islamic right to lead and participate in meetings, study sessions, and other community activities without being separated by a barrier. Women have an Islamic right to be greeted and addressed cordially. And I guess I did read them all. Number 10, women have an Islamic right to respectful treatment and exemption from gossip and slander. So that's uh, women's rights in a mosque. So you can imagine if she has, if she um, 
uh, has to write these down, that in some mosques those things do not actually happen. You know, we talked a lot about the most extreme uh, type of Islam uh, comes from Saudi Arabia. Uh, that's the place where you've probably heard uh, women can't drive, they have to wear slippers so even their footsteps aren't heard, uh, they can't leave the house without a man, uh, all of that stuff. But, you know, even things are being challenged there because I think women are starting to vote there and women have challenged the status quo by going out and drive. So, you know, even that patriarchal monster is slowly crumbling. Um, now, here's the Islamic Bill of Rights for uh, women in the bedroom. Now, you might be more interested in this one, but, um, okay, so there's ten of these. I guess I'll just read them all because I think they're interesting. Women have an Islamic right to respectful and pleasurable sexual experience. Women have an Islamic right to make independent decisions about their bodies, including the right to say no to sex. Women have an Islamic right to make independent decisions about their partner, including the right to say no to a husband marrying a second wife. Women have an Islamic right to make independent decisions about their choice of a partner. Women have an Islamic right to make independent decisions about contraception and reproduction. Women have an Islamic right to protection from physical, emotional, and sexual abuse. Women have an Islamic right to sexual privacy. Women have an Islamic right to exemption from criminalization or punishment for consensual adult sex. Women have an Islamic right to exemption from gossip and slander. And the final one, number 10, women have an Islamic right to sexual health care and sex education. Um, you know, this reminds me when Roy, uh, my husband, and I took Kabbalah classes, one of the things that they taught was that it was a man's obligation to make sure uh, his wife was uh, pleasured um, in bed. In fact, they believed that that would ensure a male child. So, um, especially if you know, not only if the woman, if, if not only if the husband wanted his wife to be happy, but if he wanted a male child, he really ought to make sure he did a good job and pleasured her. So anyway, um, there's that. Well, um, we are coming to the close of the show. Um, prayers go out to Pat. Uh, our roving reporter who uh, had a head-on collision uh, not that long ago. Uh, she is recovering from some rather devastating injuries, and uh, Pat's name has been on our altar, and uh, we want to send her wishes to get well soon. And, um, you know, sometimes I think God slows us down because we need to slow down. Uh, and I hope she uses this downtime to do something that maybe she's always wanted to do, like maybe put five books on her bedside table and uh, read those five books that maybe she hasn't had time to read before. Um, so, Pat, feel better and um, do what you can to enjoy the downtime. Um, also, um, I wanted to be sure you knew about uh, Sage Woman uh, magazine. Uh, Sage Woman is one of the few uh, goddess uh, magazines out there that uh, really has its finger on the pulse of uh, what's going on uh, in the goddess world. 
And I'm trying to see if I have something written on Sage Woman. Oh, I don't have it with me today. But I know they have a special offer. And the special offer is you can actually get a free issue of Sage Woman if you go to Sage Woman Magazine and either email them or call them and tell them you heard me talk about Sage Woman on the show, and they will make sure you actually get a uh, complimentary issue of uh, of Sage Woman Magazine. So you want to make sure you uh, take advantage of uh, that freebie and, um, you know, tell your friends. Uh, also, remember uh, what Goddess teaches us, what you nurture and tend to, it survives and thrives, and what you neglect, well, it tends to wither. And um, I want to offer an incentive to listeners out there. Uh, for contributions of $100 or more, you'll get my uh, three-CD set of interviews uh, with goddess advocates discussing sacred places around the world, which cannot be found on any Internet archives. That can only be gotten from me. Um, and you know what? If you can't afford a large contribution like that, I am sincerely grateful to take smaller offerings, and you too will get uh, a gift for your generosity. And uh, in keeping with generosity, which I believe is uh, ideal of goddess, um, now is uh, now this is where you can actually win a free copy of my book, Walking an Ancient Path. If you are the first three people uh, to email me after the show uh, at my email address, Karen Tate 108 at ca.rr.com and tell me about yourself and why you'd like a copy of the book. Uh, remember to, giving, uh, to give me your mailing ad- address. You will be the winner. Now, um, if you live outside the United States, I cannot mail you a book, but we can work something out and maybe get you a PDF. Um, so be sure to follow the instructions. That's part of winning the book. Um, and the book, uh, Walking an Ancient Path, is about living a goddess-inspired life and uh, hearing about magical experiences and sacred pilgrimages. Um, that special uh, is in addition to the one I mentioned earlier in the show. Uh, if you buy two books, and uh, you get Walking an Ancient Path for free. So uh, three for the price of two. Uh, but you have to buy through me. Um, you can't do this on Amazon or anything like that. So uh, contact me at KarenTate108 at ca.rr.com, and uh, we'll set things up for your purchase. Uh, you can pay with PayPal, and uh, we'll get those in the mail to you. Um, also, you can go to the Goddess Store page uh, or and purchase the two books. And uh, in the comments section, uh, that uh, there's always a place for you to send me a message when you make a PayPal purchase. You can just uh, mention the free offer of Walking an Ancient Path when you buy uh, two books. Yes, indeed. And uh, more free stuff while you're there on my website. Please take advantage of all the free stuff there. Uh, There are talks, there's workshops, there's free downloadable meditations, uh, lots of, you know, lots of uh, good stuff there I hope you will um, use. Also, um, the Goddess Calling um, audio book series that my husband helped me uh, put together, Uh, those are on YouTube. Um, You can find those uh, by going to YouTube and in the search box, 
put Goddess Calling audiobook series, and those will start to come up. Uh, there are about three or four of them that we've released so far, and um, probably we'll be doing another one of those uh, pretty soon. <clears throat> So um, remember, if uh, you enjoy this kind of programming, uh, that blog talk is not free to host like me. We see more and more how vital independent media is becoming um, as the mainstream media has really given up on all journalistic integrity because of their corporate owners. I mean, we see it uh, more now than we've ever seen it before. I think this presidential election has... Uh, really just uh, solidified how bad um, the mainstream media is. So your contributions are needed and welcome. Um, I do pay out of my pocket to give guests a platform to teach and share their wisdom. So please use the PayPal buttons on my uh, website. Uh, you can find them on the Goddess Store page if you'd like to make a credit card contribution or, send, uh, or use PayPal, or you can always uh, send a check. And um, that will help me continue to do all the free things that I do. Um, let's see, what else? What else did I want to tell you? Well, um, I think um, I'd like to close with my little soapbox statement that uh, so many of you say get you all charged up. Um, so here goes. This is my sacred roar, I guess. As many of you know, adversaries of the sacred feminine tried to sweep away awareness and knowledge of her for all time. And with that sweeping away, when the great she was made to disappear because of the religion of patriarchy, of selfish and disconnected men and their war gods, women and their power, their leadership, their spiritual authority were thwarted, repressed, became taboo, diminished, disrespected, killed, that's why we say here on the show we are dedicated to recovering the great she, whether she be a deity, archetype, or ideal. Yes, we intend to defy, to taste the forbidden fruit, to be powerful and uppity women, to throw off the shackles, look under every rock, behind every locked door, peer into the abyss of the past so we know why things are the way they are, how they have come to be turned on their head and so unnatural. I think some refer to it as the great reversal. And we are going to go about setting things right. Why? Well, because if we want to save ourselves as a species, I think we have no other choice. If we want to restore balance, harmony, wholeness, sanity, equality, peace, joy, all of those things that the sacred feminine represents, it is women and our like-minded allies, our brothers, armed with ideals of the sacred feminine who will set things back on course. And, you know, we are seeing today, like never before, how things we thought could never happen are really happening. I, You know, I keep going back to the Bernie Sanders campaign. It is just so much a reflection of the paradigm shift. So... When you are feeling hopeless and you are feeling it is just never, ever going to happen, you think about Bernie Sanders and you think about the words of Gandhi that I'm about to share with you and the words of Arthur Schopenhauer. First author, Arthur Schopenhauer, the 19th century German philosopher, his, uh, his words here are one of the mottos for the show. 
all truth passes through three stages. First, it's ridiculed. Second, it's violently opposed. And third, it is accepted for being self-evident. I mean, seriously, can't you just see that in the goddess movement? Can't you see it in Bernie Sanders' campaign and in so many other things that are changing around the world, things that we never thought we would ever see, but they're happening, like gay rights, for instance? And then Gandhi. Gandhi said, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win. Well, I think my dear Bernie, they ignored him. They might still be laughing at him, but, you know, after winning seven out of the uh, last eight uh, primaries and caucuses, now they're coming out to fight him. They're getting really nasty on social media. But you know what? I think he's going to win. Well, thanks, dear listeners. I appreciate you uh, taking your valuable time to be with me every week. Uh, Please go to the archives, and I'm sure there's wonderful things there that you have yet to hear. And in closing tonight, I would just like to say, uh, may goddess, deity, archetype, and ideal, may she embrace you in her golden wings, and may you find your sacred roar. Good night.